All right, here we are, Wednesday breakfast. Yes, April 25th, Anzac Day, and a day that brings up lots of feelings, different feelings for people. Yeah, and here we are, we're putting together a little podcast for you, the best of what we have and what we've done today at the show. Yeah, so later in the show, at the very end, we we spoke to... um, Denise Braley about the banking system and the Royal Commission into the banks and what, what may result from that. Uh, she's been working in the space for 15 years, 18 years we hear at the end, so stay tuned to there. Yes, and um, you know, results of my trip to New Zealand, where we heard about um, the Prime Minister's announcement that there'll be no new permits for exploration of deep-sea oil and gas, speaking to Aaron Packard from 350 Aotearoa. And we get a bit of Frontier Wars theme throughout this Anzac Day broadcast, and Henry Reynolds, we checked check in with Henry Reynolds, um, eminent historian, about his thoughts on commemorating those balls here in Australia and what that will mean for the Australian psyche. Yes, and uh, of course, Anzac Day, the peace vigil. Um, We heard from Graham Dunstan in Canberra, direct from Canberra, who has been uh, up all night, had been up all night, and he sounded pretty alert, I thought, for that, and described the the lanterns and the walking down Mount Ainsley and and the mood of the crowd that came for the uh, dawn service and how they were quite receptive to people who were there to demonstrate about the frontier wars. Mm, Great insight into that space. And then uh, Sue Wareham, Dr. Sue Wareham, who's the president of the Medical Association for Prevention of War uh, in the Australia branch. And uh, she spoke about some of the issues around Anzac Day and the need for us to to take lessons from wars of the past and move towards uh, peace, more more peaceful resolutions rather than jumping into violence. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you hear little fades out of great songs... It's not by choice, it's by licence. We can't play all the songs in our podcasting licence at the moment here at 3CR. But enjoy the show and tune in next week, 7 o'clock till 8.30am on a Wednesday, Australian Eastern Standard Time. We acknowledge that we meet and work on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Bungarong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Hello and good morning and welcome to 3CR. Wednesday breakfast is where you are. It is and it's great to be back, Paddy. It's lovely to hear your voice and see your face. I'm privileged enough to be able to see your face today, Judith. (laughs) You're too kind. (laughs) It's early in the morning. You've been away for a little bit. Where have you been? Well, I've been in New Zealand and uh, later in the show we'll hear hear a bit about my efforts there. But mainly I was there uh, doing a Tai Chi workshop, working very hard. Were you? How does a Tai Chi workshop work? How does it work? Well, um, I get, you know, we do, the Tai Chi I do is 108 moves. So a lot of the time is spent working on the different moves and many levels of those moves. And it's within the 108, there's probably 35, 40 that are different, and then they go into a sequence. Anyway, we refine, we remember things we forgot, <laughs> and, uh, and we work hard. We started at 9.30 every day and finished at 9 in the evening. Oh. 
<laughs> yeah, just to give you an idea. That's a good idea. How many people were partaking in this? Well, there were. It was in Wellington or Upper Hutt, actually. It was about forty-five minutes from Wellington on the train. Um, about seventy on during the week, and a few and more, another twenty on the weekend. But the week before, there'd been one in in Australia where there were two hundred and twenty. <laughs> so yeah, it's big. Mm. And what type of people are there? People who are practicing and teaching, or just all kinds of um, Tai Chi it's, masters? It's, and... it, yeah, well, masters is a bit strong. I heard you and, and Nick talking about <laughs> how you had to a Tai Chi master. Not quite. I was wondering <laughs> but, if you'd pull me up on that, Judith. Well, yeah, you can't get away with that one. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's people who teach, and it's also people who just uh, practice who come along to classes. So we had twenty two from Melbourne in in not in New Zealand. I was the only one from Melbourne, but in in Gatton up in Queensland, there were twenty two. Uh, some people who hadn't been doing it very long. Some people doing it thirty years. The same style of Tai Chi. So. Yeah, it's a lot of energy, lots of learning, and uh, it kind of, you know, reinvigorates your Tai Chi. It's great. Mm. And you teach Tai Chi, don't you, here in Melbourne? Well, we're all volunteers, so this isn't a promo for... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, but uh, I'm part of the Taoist Tai Chi Society, and I teach uh, two classes a week, and um, there are about... uh, I think 10 other instructors, I'd have to check on that. And, um, yeah, classes in Brunswick and Middle Park at the moment and Ivanhoe. Well, so if anyone wants to meet Judith and do a bit of Tai Chi, (laughs) they should head down there. I've always wanted to know, um, what do you feel like personally that you get from Tai Chi and partaking in Tai Chi? Well, I mean, I you know, the interesting thing is I did this particular style many years ago in Canada with the teacher, the man who developed it, Master Moilin Chin, and uh, I did it for a year very intensively with my partner at the time. And I always thought, you know, I'll always come back to Toronto to do this again. So what I get is I, I have lots of agility, flexibility, sense of calmness, because you, you really have to focus. And it's so funny with the 108 moves because there's one move that leads into a number of different ones throughout the set. So... If you start thinking about whether you locked your car, for example, or whether you paid the bill or whatever, you can actually drift off into another different part altogether. So it's a kind of moving meditation, and I think that is really true. You know, it does. You have to focus, Mm -hmm. so that's good. Focus mind and body. It's also good for a lot of different health problems, and I think we're seeing more literature coming out now showing that Tai Chi is beneficial in lots of different ways. But, you know, I didn't quite prepare myself to talk about this this morning. I don't have my... I've just always been fascinated, and I thought it was a good time to just update listeners, and I'm sure you're very thorough with this, and we'll get an update later, but I just have always wanted to ask you this, and what better place than on air? I think there's not often a chance to get a little insight into Tai Chi. Sure, and we have about 170 people in, in Melbourne who are who are practicing. And, uh, yeah, it's also very social, mm. which is nice too. People support each other. And, yeah. and the fact that we're all volunteers, the instructors, means that we're not kind of, you know, looking at you and saying, you know, <laughs> you've got more money to give us in that kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a good organisation. The closest I get is someone down at the beach where I live uh, does a bit of Tai Chi in the afternoons or mornings and it is a beautiful scene he's quite a round lad and he's very 
one with the space. It's really nice to see him hold that space down at the beach and use yeah. that area. And the great thing is people from, you know, lots of different fitness levels, lots of ages. different. We have three people who are 90. Whoa. Yeah, that's amazing. There's and no excuses. Have, there no, excuses. no excuses. And then people in their 20s. Anyway, yeah, there's, and it is lovely to see. I agree. And mm. lovely to do. Oh, beautiful. Thanks for sharing, Judith. It's good insight. And today is an Anzac Day broadcast, I suppose. And we're going to hear now um, from Wilfred Owen's poem, Dolce e Decoralist. Double like old beggars under sacks, knock kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots but limped on bloodshod. All went lame, all blind. Drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watched the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie. Dulci et decorum est, pro patria mori. And that was Wilfred Owen's famous poem, Dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. It is sweet and right to die for your country. Wilfred Owen <coughs> was a soldier during World War I and a poet, and um, his writing exposed the horrors of war, and particularly of the trenches and the gas warfare, which, which you could hear. Mm. And uh, he, he saw service twice. He um, was um, in the trenches, and then he, I think, experienced an injury and also what they called shell shock, and now I think post-traumatic stress. And so he was in hospital, and it was during that year that he wrote a lot of his poetry. 
And then he decided to go back against the advice of many people because he, he felt it was the only place that he could make his protest from, mm. was to be there, to be with the people. And, of course, he died um, before the, just a week before, I think. Well, five the, days before. Yeah, yeah, the war ended. So it's a, he's, o- he's only 25. And, um, you know, the World War I was called the war to end all wars. Feels a bit ironic now. Uh, the desire to prevent war from ever happening again led to the establishment of the League of Nations, which, you know, was a precursor to the forerunner to the United Nations. But as we know, painfully, it did happen again and continues. And not too soon after. Yes. And so our next guest uh, has devoted much time to the prevention of war. And uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Sue Wareham to 3CR Breakfast this morning. It's, um, she's the president of the Medical Association for Prevention of War, Australia. She's on the board of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, a member of the board of ICANN, and we've certainly had lots of interviews with ICANN people. We have had a few from ICANN. Yeah, um, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, Australia. And she's also secretary for Australians for War Powers Reform. Uh, So, Sue Wareham, uh, welcome to 3CR. Good morning, Judith. Good to be with you. And thank you for making time this morning. And you're a busy person. I mean, just reading that list, I'm already feeling a little bit tired. (laughs) But please tell me, how did you become involved? I became involved in all of this quite a long time ago in the early 1980s when nuclear weapons were big news. There wasn't the same degree of complacency around them that there has been since the end of the Cold War, really. So I, like a lot of people, was absolutely horrified and dumbstruck at the capacity of humanity to destroy itself, basically. I couldn't, couldn't make sense of that at all, couldn't reconcile it with, with my own profession, um, medical profession, or with my Christian faith, or with, with anything, really. So I became active on the issue of nuclear weapons at that stage. But once, uh, once one gets involved in looking at nuclear weapons, then you really realise that nuclear weapons are certainly by by far the worst weapons that exist, the worst things ever created. But they're really the tip of the iceberg and warfare, the iceberg of, of warfare and the impacts of that um, go far, far be, belong beyond nuclear weapons. So I, I became in interested in looking at the whole aspect of warfare, its destructiveness, but also the fact that we do so, so little to prevent it. Yes, uh, and, and, and Anzac Day brings together uh, so many of those concerns. Yes, it does, indeed, and I think that's why it's important for us to get this message out, not only other times of the year, but also in, of course, a respectful fashion mm. on Anzac Day. Yes. And Wilfred Owen's mm-hmm. um, poem that you, of which you read, read out the most well-known uh, line, um, really reminds one that we need to be thinking of peace as patriotic. We have this really bombarded with the implicit message, not explicit, but implicit message that war is patriotic. We need to be thinking that peace is patriotic. Peace is the best thing for our country best thing for the people of our country and the best thing for our world on this very small planet that we live in. 
Yes, indeed. And and um, I know that uh, the organizations you're involved in and, and provide leadership in as well uh, is questioning why wars occur at all. Um, whose interest do, does war serve? Well, there's the old adage, follow the money, if something doesn't quite make sense. And certainly the rapidity with which we go to war doesn't make sense. Um, so if you follow the money, I mean, it's the, the war profiteers, they certainly benefit. And, for example, with um, with the coalition strikes on, on Syria, when they occur, we see that the stocks in the weapons companies go up. So we really, really, have... really, is that right? I, I had never thought to look at the stocks of the weapons companies, but that that's something to follow. Yes, yes. And what's particularly distressing in Australia at the moment is the fact that our own government wants us to be one of the top 10 weapons exporters. So, you know, as we, we utter the words, lest we forget, then we, we go on absolutely forgetting every lesson of history, and particularly... We forget about the arms build-ups that, that played a key role in leading to World War One. There were um, there was a huge profit motive at that time, and certainly the arms dealers and traders were about the only ones who profited from World War One. Uh, and yet we we forget that lesson, and we we merrily think that that arms projects are just about creating jobs as if it's like, you know, making soap powder or selling wheat or something. It's, it's um, amazing. I mean, you know, the, the link to connect, you know, selling wheat and making soap powder to weapons, but it is, isn't it? I mean, it's on, it's kind of put forward as a, an employment producing activity without really uh, engaging with the awfulness of what those weapons do. Yes, it is. And even though we're told that it's about jobs, 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 if we in fact put the same amount of money that the government is putting into promoting weapons exports at the moment, we put that same amount into, say, health or education or public transport or looking after the environment or a whole host of other needs that you could name, we'd in fact get a lot more jobs in other sectors of the society. So we're being sold short even on the issue of jobs yes. as we look to weapons exports. Uh, let alone the whole ethical dilemma, huge ethical problems with making ourselves war profiteers. So if part of your economy is on selling weapons, then you're not going to have quite the same interest in preventing the use of those weapons. And there's nothing that increases weapon sales better than either wars or threats of wars, which means instability, countries feeling uncertain, and really they're the antithesis of the sort of Society that we should be aiming to live in for ourselves and for the rest of the world. Mm. And so on that note of Australia profiting from war and the campaign to raise awareness and get people into the arms industry here in Australia as a, re as a result of that program that the government has released to get us into the top 10 producers of arms, have you seen across the board different mechanisms that the government has used to promote that deal and that scenario here in Australia? Well, it's greatly sanitised. Um, I've mentioned the issue of jobs, and that's a, a key tactic that the government uses, talk about jobs, and then it makes it harder for people to oppose these programs and get people locked in, uh, locked into jobs programs in that way. 
But the other way, I think, is just sanitising the whole notion of warfare and talking about war being uh, war and defence being more or less the same. And have you seen... We know when Australia goes to war these days, we're not usually defending ourselves. If you look at our recent wars, we're not going to war against countries or in countries that have been any threat to Australia. So war is a pretty nasty extension of our foreign policy uh, and not really in the defence of our country. So it's really turning the whole notion of, of defence on its head. And I would add on on this particular day, Anzac Day, that it's doing a, a grave and very serious dishonour to all those who have died thinking, believing that they were doing something to bring peace to their country and to the world, and particularly World War One being, as we all know, labelled the war to end all wars. This is a terrible disservice to those people who suffered and died in that war and other wars since. Mm, just as an observer, I've seen billboards and different things popping up around the army enlisting and encouraging people to um, join the industry, I suppose. And I was just wondering, yeah, what your thoughts were on that. And have you seen and noticed that on top of the Anzac spirit being evoked at this time of year and government jumping on that bandwagon to encourage that participation? Well, one of the worst examples of that sort of thing is actually at the Australian War Memorial itself in Canberra, which is our preeminent um, preeminent institution for the commemoration of warfare. And the Australian War Memorial in Canberra actually accepts funding from war profiteers, from weapons companies, which is pretty highly offensive to many people. If you walk into the War Memorial, there's BAE Theatre, sponsored by BAE Systems, which is Britain's greatest um, arms producer, currently selling arms to Saudi Arabia that's causing humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen. Um, so the Australian War Memorial accepting contributions from weapons, weapons makers is a huge ethical problem. But we see the promotion of the arms industry in a lot of other places as well. And, uh, for example, at the Canberra Airport, if you fly into the airport of Australia's national capital, you see pretty much wall-to-wall big display advertisements for weapons companies, mm. uh, including uh, there has been, I think is still there, one for the Australian War Memorial sponsored by Northrop Grumman. And Northrop Grumman's name is on the Australian War Memorial ad at Canberra Airport and elsewhere. And so in some... Really led, mm-hmm. I was going yeah, to say... Yeah, really letting the war, prof, war profiteers to... Um, capitalize on yes. those um, yeah and, uh, and those, th- those names are, are just names in a way uh, you know they won't have a lot of meaning but but what are the weapons that those companies produce for example well a whole range of things Lockheed Martin which advertises regularly say at Canberra Airport and also contributes to the Australian War Memorial Lockheed Martin is the world's biggest weapons manufacturer based in the United States. They make all sorts of things, um, a whole whole range of weaponry. Um, one of the particularly offensive aspects of all of this is that um, a number of the big weapons manufacturers which advertise regularly, whether it's at the airport, in our newspapers or elsewhere, a number of them involve, are involved in the manufacture of nuclear weapons which have now been deemed illegal since we have, since July last year, the new UN 
Nuclear Weapons Prohibition Treaty and uh, earnest and um, very, very exciting and promising developments around the world to bring this new Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty into effect. Uh, and that is going to happen at some stage. But meanwhile, the companies that make the weapons are still advertising. So we need we need pressure on Yes, and we also need awareness about what these companies actually do, I think, because unless you you dig a bit more deeply, it's just a name. So I think it's important, and that's part of the work that you're certainly doing uh, in your various capacities in the different organizations. So you also, I mean, there's so many omissions in our official war commemorations, you know. So what are some of those omissions? Yes, there are. There are, there are big, big ones. There are a couple that stand out in my mind. Um, and the first one is, I can't say that our official war commemoration completely overlooks civilians because that's not so. But it does overlook the vast majority of the casualties of war these days, which are the civilians in the countries where we fight our wars. Well, we Yemen Yemen is a perfect example. We're, well, we're not fighting there, but as you said, uh, providing arms to Saudi Arabia. But they're Syria, of course, so there's so many areas where civilians are suffering greatly. Yes, yes. And the so-called war on terror that Australia has so enthusiastically supported since two, 2001, the invasion of Afghanistan, the war on terror is estimated to have killed over a million people um, by estimates vary because it's very hard to get accurate figures but that was a figure from international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war and the majority of them are civilians yes. so when we go to war we go to war with um, with grand notions about um, standing in the way of harm protecting the innocent but in the process most of our victims are innocent people Yes, and not to mention, of course, the soldiers who uh, who go, uh, the men and the women, and the you know, in part of the forces who also uh, suffer greatly as a result. So, Wareham, thank yes. you so much uh, for joining us on Wednesday breakfast this morning. We're we're out of time, but uh, thank you for your insights, and I think helping us to deep to dig more deeply and to think more deeply about Anzac Day and, and ways to, to prevent war. So, you know, all the great work you're doing, your organization. Thank you. Thank you very much, Judith. You gotta remember Nainox a special day for us fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! You're on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and um, we've just been speaking to Dr Sue Wareham, President of the Medical Association for, for Prevention of War in Australia. Uh, it's the Australian uh, Medical Association for Prevention of War. So, 
uh, it was great to, to get her thoughts and also inf more information. So now as I'm leaving I'm weary as hell The confusion I'm feeling Ain't no tongue can tell The words fill my head And I fall to the floor That if God's on our side He'll stop the next war And that was Bob Dylan uh, with um, God on Our Side. He'll stop the next war. So that's from his album, 1964, The Times They Are A-Changing. And I think when I listened to this, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I was thinking, oh, it's a bit dated. The Russians aren't our enemies anymore. And look how it's all come around with <laughs> the tensions now between Russia and the U.S. and, and uh, our involvement with U.S. Um, practices in, mm. in going to war. Yeah, so... The still, narrative is building... Yes, and now we have on. We're going right across to Canberra because there's been an all-night peace vigil in Canberra, and we're going to speak to to Graham Dunstan, who's been there. Graham, are you on the line? I am. I'm oh, fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing to be talking to someone who's I think has been up all night. Have you been up all night? Well, let's say I've been in the vigil all night. I slept a part of it. <laughs> Busy. But now I'm standing in Anzac Parade at a beautiful rising sun, beautiful light in the morning. And it's been after um, the dawn service. So we're set up at the um, lower end of Anzac Parade, uh, opposite the Australian War Memorial. And um, it's a frontier wars camp. There's a flag display and banners, placards naming the massacres. And a crowd comes before dawn. They start arriving at 4 a.m. And uh, the dawn service at 5.30. Rush of people and shadow through the night. And then, and I reckon they would have had maybe 20,000. It's a huge crowd. This is for the dawn service, is it? For the dawn service, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they come, we can hear, they drop the streetlights. It gets very dark. And we can hear a kilometre away from the war memorial, the service quite clearly. So what can I say about that? Well, service is changing, right? Uh, more poetry, more participation, more women's voices. Um, Antac's going on, you know, celebration, commemoration of Antac is not a fixed thing. Um, always evolving. And that's more so that's in interesting, yeah. Yeah. And then the crowd comes back. Um the rising sun, you know, the, the sky's lightened. Uh, amazing number of people. And it's a soft, gentle crowd. You know, they've been through a secular, sacred experience. It's true. And um, they're gentle. So when they see this frontier war stuff, we cop no abuse. You know, how dare you? It's more sympathy, yeah? Heart-touched sympathy. So this is how we change the world. We're assembled here. This will be the assembly, assembly place for the Anzac Day, lest we forget the Frontier Wars March, 
which tacks on to the end of the RSL march and goes up to the Australian War Memorial through the crowd of spect spectators um, to be turned away by a police line. But the spectators, yes. <laughs> <and> <laughs> most people are coming from military families um, to see their loved ones marching, warmly applaud um, the Frontier Wars marches. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I do a lot of protest, a lot of activism. Very rarely do you get that kind of reception from a crowd. You know, most of paradox. What do you think you're doing? Why haven't you got a job? Not this one, you know. It touches people heart, people's hearts. And although the Australian War Memorial, its um, board of directors, um, are refusing to recognise the Frontier Wars, certainly um, the people of Australia, uh, the families of serving soldiers, uh, have their heart in that direction, you know. It's changing. And you can really feel that, Graham, can you? How many services over the years have you been there and, and noticed and been observing this change happening? This is the seventh annual uh, Frontier Wars March. So I've been at all of those and doing this vigil. So, yes, I've seen changes. I mm. feel changes. And you feel it? And yeah. we saw it. We saw it at, on um, Australia Day, um, how quickly... Uh, the mood has turned against um, celebrating the Invasion Day. Uh, yes, and so... National Day. Mm. Huge crowds turned in support of um, uh, Invasion Day. Australia Day events were struggling to get crowds. You know, that, that's yes. a big change in five years. It is a big change, and uh, it shows the mood of the country is changing as well. And uh, Graham, because I haven't been to a peace vigil, I'm really interested in, in how you went last night. I mean, you had a lovely night for it. I think uh, last year I think it rained, but this year the, it was very. It was. It sounds like it was good. How was it? Even warm. Imagine that. It was absolutely beautiful. And Bob Dylan was there. The younger Bob Dylan, blowing in the wind. Oh, really? Oh, and that's, that's actually, yeah, on, I think that might be on this album we played. Yes. Wow. So you were singing songs. Well, yes. So we assemble on top of Mount Ainsley, and people who know Canberra, they, that's the mountain, it's a landmark mountain um, behind the Australian War Memorial. And when you're looking from the Parliament, you're looking towards the memorial framed by this big mountain. Mm. And... Uh, it's woman's country, so we get a welcome, uh, an acknowledgement of country from uh, a woman. But it's led by the, a group in Canberra, cor a chorus of women who see themselves as a chorus in the Greek idea, that they provide the emotive message, as it were, supporting the words. So they rehearse and they sing in beautiful harmonies. And furthermore, they've written beautiful songs over the years to develop one. And... Um, and the one that the special one from the night is they call Spirit Song, Whispering in the Night. And it's, um, it's a, it's, it's a, you, I, I well up. Yes, I <laughs> can I hear, I can hear that. Yeah. So it's, it's the image is of a um, mother hearing 
um, death, hearing a sound in death, far away, calling out the spirit. And uh, pure lament, pure lament is what they achieved there. So this is a Lantern event, um, and everyone gets a Lantern, and we then invite people to go down the mountain in silence with the Lanterns in a procession, uh, with the metaphor of going into the darkness of grief, carrying a little light. This little light of mine is a song we sing as we collect the Lanterns, allocate them, provide them. Distribute the lands. Anyway, then they come down the, the mountain and assemble at the bottom again, waiting for people to catch up and bunch up. More singing. More Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, coming out of grief into community, sharing the grief. Uh, and then we move on into the forecourt, which we did last night, uh, of the Australian War Memorial, all set up for the dawn service and have our own liturgy by candlelight and hard talk, songs. Great, Jacob Gretsch was there. He was a personality from RCR in Melbourne. Yes, he and is. And he sang this great song, the um, Rose of York, I think it is. You know, an Irish lament about soldiers that first been called up for the First World War. Powerful stuff. People are deeply moved by me too. Yes, um, I, I can hear Graham as you describe it. Uh, you know how how moving it was, and uh, in a way, what a, uh, an amazing event to participate in. It's a gem for people visiting Canberra. You can time your visits for Anzac Eve. Do this one, and all the more powerful for being at the heart of the Australian War Memorial surrounded by this monumental art. I mean, they're very generous to us. They turn off all the ambient light they can, but leave the projections on, but it's good. And the, what, are and, the, what are the projections, Graham? Oh, a bit of a controversy years ago. Brendan Nelson introduced uh, projections onto the walls of the memorial during Anzac Day. And they're classic, iconic photographs from the wars, from the First and Second World War. But also modern stuff. Um, Afghanistan is there, SAS stuff. Uh, so yeah. Images of war and service is what they're projecting there. It's great. It looks like mean, it's a great lighting display. Uh, that's no, but what a kind do. of contrast, a counterpoint to your your peace vigil in, in some ways. Or, yeah, I don't know. How did you feel? Well, it's it, the, the contradiction that we live with is the savagery of war and this great yearning for peace. So, um, well. Yes, it was all there. I mean, yeah. And it's like finding the common ground of grief. Now, that's what the um, Dawn Service appeals to, of course. Um, but it's kind of um, trumped up because they can't say, they don't take the next step. But when one shares grief, um, with friends and family and community. Um, the response, what comes naturally next is never again, right? Let's not let this happen again. Let's work together and prevent it so we don't have to grieve like this again. Yes. But that's not what happens at the dawn service. Um, 
uh, people are taken into this collective grief, uh, but then it's redirected to um, the glorification of um, noble sacrifice for the nation. More blood. Like, think of Kipling's line that he ran out of after his son, which he wrote all those magnificent books for, was killed in France. And he'd been a major propagandist for the war. Kind of doodled. One of the lines that survives is, if you ask us why our sons have died, tell them that our fathers lied. And that's the lie that he's referring to. The great lie. Yeah. Noble sacrifice to the empire. So, with the vigilante building over this past seven years, Graham, um, you put out the shout out, or the vigilante put out the shout to share stories, poetry, and stirring conversation, and to bring a cup to share some soup um, with a rug. do you see a lot of people returning to this every year from the seven years that you've been? And, and where do people come from to join join in the vigilante? Vigilante. <laughs> oh, vigil, sorry. Uh, me, Graham, the peace vigil. Yeah. Um, well, see, the context of this is the um, Frontiers War storytelling camp at the Tent Embassy. Um, so... People come from all over. Um, we had a, um, a Frontier Wars camp, a preliminary camp at Concest over Easter, and um, elders, Uncle Ned Hargraves from uh, Walpuri country, Uendamu, Central Australia, came, and also um, Marbuck, Uncle Marbuck Wilson, who comes from Bwarana around there, she's Gillimore, uh, Gimilroy country. They've been in residence at the Tent Embassy, and we've had storytellers here um, coming through. So we have both, well, you know, Noona <laughs> and uh, white guys um, in camping. And it's a beautiful camp, so this prepares um, us for it. few people at the vigil, a lot of people at the camp, because everything's set up there. Mm. But my particular thing is to set up this display, this um, of the massacre placards and the, and the flags. So uh, the flags themselves were painted up for this event. Uh, usually, the motive of the desert tea, which is oh, another Central theme, Australia, we, yeah, it's um, being brought forth now by a wonderful. Um, Floral activist, we call her called Hazel Davies, and who's a professional florist, um, lectures in floristry, does jobs for the Australian War Memorial and the uh, flower jobs. And, and, <laughs> the vid- and the vigil as well, I guess, from the sound of it. Okay. And the vigil. It's under this creation story of the desert tea, which establishes it as a blood flower equivalent of the planter's poppy. Yeah. Oh, I see. There's I didn't about, know that. Yeah. yeah. This is what's being brought forth. Right. And um, she's working. She's she had a dream about this, and now her whole life is directed. She's been running a desert tea-making workshop at the embassy, preparing, and she's made it now, this beautiful um, 
wreath for the frontier wolves using desert pea motives, which she makes out of red felt and a black bead, right? And mm -hmm. she can make one a minute and teach people to make one a minute. Mm -hmm. So she had a lot of people coming through right. making these desert um, and preparing the wreath. Graham, you know, we're, we're going, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave you, but it's been a fantastic insight into the Anzac E vigil, a peace vigil, and then what you've been doing and uh, in commemorating and remembering the frontier wars. You've just given us a beautiful insight into what's been happening there in Canberra. So thank you so very much. Great to see you a few more days around. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> We're just speaking with Graham from the Peace Vigil out in Canberra. It was great to hear from there. And if you want to listen back to Earth Matters, Earth Matters, we were having a chat to that particular florist this morning and when Earth Matters airs here at 3CR about the story of how she came across um, wanting to put this forward. So tune in and listen back if you want to get around that. But right now we're going to listen to a little piece put together to commemorate their often forgotten told story of First Australians or Indigenous community who fought in First World War and Second World War. I'm Aaron Pedersen. This Anzac Day, we reflect on the service of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in all wars, conflicts and peacekeeping operations. Gary Oakley is a highly respected Indigenous military historian who's acutely aware of the role that First Nations men and women have played in the defence of our country. And he's also very proud of it. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have served this nation in uniform since before the Boer War, some even serving in the colonial defence forces. After Federation um, and the 1903 Defence Act came out, Indigenous Australians were not required to serve in the Australian Defence Force and this restriction wasn't lifted until 1949. But up until that period, Australia went through two world wars and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders served in both. After the uh, Korean War, again, which Indigenous Australians did serve in, Indigenous Australians have served in all three services of the Australian Defence Force, and they have done so right up until the present day. Gary Oakley remembering the service and sacrifice of all Australians. Vanessa Siki is the official historian for the Torres Strait Islands. Here, she relates a story that all Australians should know about, that of the Torres Strait Light Infantry Battalion. Formed during the Second World War, its main purpose was to defend our northern coastline. First enlistments were June 41. The numbers slowly grew up, but then the enlistments really took off once Torres Strait began to suffer aerial air raids by the Japanese. So by the end of 1942, 880 men had volunteered. It's the highest rate of enlistment per population in the country and indeed the Commonwealth. Now they had joined at a time when they weren't considered citizens of Australia. They weren't on the Commonwealth Census, they didn't have the right to vote, they weren't paid the same pay, they got half the wage of non-Indigenous soldiers, uh, they largely couldn't be promoted above a corporal and couldn't drink alcohol with their non-Indigenous mates, but they still volunteered in such incredible numbers, it's the highest rate in the country. Now these men also performed other duties, not just infantry soldiers, they were shipwrights, carpenters, plumbers, um, artillery gunners, they were already operating as pilots, so their skill and deportment as soldiers led them to other fields. In fact, the Torres Strait's the only place in Australia where non-Indigenous and Indigenous came together in such numbers for a common goal. The Torres Strait Light Infantry Battalion it is a story that all Australians should know and share in. Just as those servicemen and women shared with the Torres Strait in World War II, we should all be sharing um, this story now.
we are tuned to 3CR, Wednesday Breakfast is where we are. And that was a little piece put together by Media Heads and it was broadcast across the National Community Radio Network. And uh, we're going to move now um, across to New Zealand, just move away from um, Anzac Day conversation for a moment and uh, just head to New Zealand because something quite remarkable has happened there. Uh, It's almost two weeks now since New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ahern, announced there would be no new permits for exploration of deep-sea oil and gas reserves. So this is a big move. It was welcomed by many environmentalists uh, as at least a step in the right direction. Aaron Packard is chairperson of 350 Aotearoa, the New Zealand arm of the international climate movement uh, 350.org was set up by uh, Bill McGibbon. And uh, Aaron Packard said he's pleased that there's no new permits. Of course, you know, one must celebrate this. But he's also concerned that uh, existing permits are going ahead, as he explained to me on the phone from New Zealand. And it wasn't a great line, so I apologize for that. But uh, here's Aaron. The government's been very clear that they're still permitting existing permits to go ahead. So we still have a lot of work to do. They've allowed the continuation of oil and gas permits onshore in in the Taranaki region for another three years. A lot of fracking going on, about I think it's 23% of Taranaki region is open for fracking permits. So industry itself is pushing hard. Right, the industry has not been happy with this announcement. No, but I mean the government's been quite upfront with them about it. They're also working on a just transition plan. The unions are on board with the long-term future is the writings on the wall in terms of moving off fossil fuels. So there's real commitment from government, unions, NGOs to actually support those workers and communities to transition into other forms of work. New Zealand is a, a small player in the global emissions of greenhouse gases. What difference will this decision make by the, this decision to not give any new permits? You're right that we are a pretty small player, but in terms of per capita, we have a very high energy footprint, carbon footprint. So there's a real moral responsibility for us to take action. What about solar energy or wind energy? What other energy is available to New Zealand? Over 80% of our energy is renewable from geothermal, wind, hydro. And in fact, we've only got one coal power plant. So that's sort of our work to decommission that, have the country go 100% renewable. The government said target of 2035 would like to see that move faster. There's been some research done outlining the opportunities for New Zealand to actually push hard on research and development into renewable energy and in fact you know there would be a big loss of financial opportunity if we didn't do that. Yes of course. What about things like public transport or even the agricultural industry which I think are both big emitters of greenhouse gases? Agriculture is you know over half of our greenhouse gas emissions in New Zealand. You know agriculture here in New Zealand has just going through an awakening period of just how much environmental damage it does cause, having over-intensified dairy, poisoned our waterways, a significant number of rivers and streams in New Zealand are no longer swimmable. I I find that amazing because I was there last week and um, it was so beautiful, everything looked so 
pristine yeah. and, and lovely. So you don't associate that with New Zealand, that there are streams that are unswimmable. Jacinda Hearn has described um, this as New Zealand's uh, nuclear mo- anti-nuclear moment. Yes, absolutely. And um, stopping any new oil or gas exploration offshore was a really promising sign that she is following through on that statement. The real challenges lay, lay ahead and how we deal with the issue of gas and whether we're genuinely moving fast mm. to 100% renewable energy. Do you have any sense of how the community has responded to this decision? Yeah, I think overall pretty positive about it. You know, the, the opposition party has tried to kick up a bit of fear about certainly that's what the industry is trying to do. So there is risk of a backlash against this call. Yeah, we've got a lot of work to do to keep these changes, which are pretty massive and significant, And that was Aaron Packard from 350 Aotearoa, the New Zealand branch of the international organisation 350.org. Let's hope they don't head down the same alley Australia is and go to try and reach the top 10 arms dealing with nations. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. And uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, Aaron, uh, I asked him, you know, what he thought and his sense was that people are supportive and he wants to keep them on board. So since I was there, mm. I decided to head down to uh, Cuba Street, which is uh, kind of downtown Wellington, to find out uh, what people had to say. And it was late morning. And the pubs were open, but uh, doing a slow business. I I didn't go in. (laughs) I don't really know, but but I think that they haven't really thought about it enough, about the consequences. What do you think about that decision not to grant any new oil exploration leases? There already are quite a few out there, but they're not going to grant new ones. It's a positive step for New Zealand, definitely. I'm really delighted that it's happened actually. Why? Because it's old fossil uh, fuel that we don't need any longer. We need to look at alternatives. Is that it's not time to close the door yet? Well, I think we should be exploring things for sure, yeah. Yes, I have heard about the decision and I think it's a great thing. Could you say why you think it's a great thing? Um, I just, I don't know the ins and outs of it all, but I guess just like anything that helps protect our environment I think is amazing and we should keep doing that at all costs. I think it's really good. Yeah, I think um, the basically because of climate change we there's no point exploring for more oil. Like we basically need to be looking at a transition away from oil rather than uh, looking for more oil. What are your options here in New Zealand? Uh, well, I mean, we're already very highly um, dependent on uh, hydro, uh, more solar, um, wind of course, especially here in Wellington. We've got heaps of wind to go around. And more things like more households with their own solar, like linking into the grid. I've heard about it, read the news, keep up with that sort of thing. And so what do you think about it? I think it's a good decision. I think we've got to be careful about how we manage the transition for like employment and stuff around those areas, because you can end up doing damage. But overall, the environmental gain from shutting down those, the permission there, that's an overall good for the world.
I'm very pleased with the decision that there will be no more leases on drilling and I'd like to see it extended further to include no more leases on drilling in the Taranaki region. And this is a great move and something we just have to do to protect our planet and climate. Do you know about the decision? Yes, I, yes, I do. I'm very aware of that. Uh, love our Prime Minister and uh, I agree with everything she's done so far. <laughs> yeah, so, so why do you think it's a good idea? Well, uh, for the obvious reasons, you know, global warming, uh, having to change to more, you know, more clean energy. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty obvious decision to make, really, and I hope uh, other people are brave enough to do the same. And nice to hear that we're world leaders again in something else other than the, you know, the, the nuclear warships and so on, so... Yeah, and uh, you know, it was. I was a bit nervous actually, Patty, <laughs> the first time doing a vox pop in New Zealand, and and I have to say, initially, because it was a you know late morning, people rushing around on a Monday, um, people weren't going to talk to me, and this was kind of unusual because I, I usually don't have trouble getting people to speak, but maybe I warmed up and relaxed, and and lots of people did, but I, I felt like that message at the end, you know, I hope more people have the courage to come on board. I'm not sure, but I think it was a message to Australia. <laughs> I reckon it could be. <laughs> yeah. And I hope I hope the ears are pricked and listening. You are tuned in to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Peace train sounding louder. Ride on the peace train. Come on. Cat Stevens ringing out true peace train there on Wednesday breakfast. 3CR is where we are. Right now, though, we have Henry Reynolds on the line, phoning in from Sydney, I believe, about to head off on a big jet plane. Thank you for joining us, Henry. Oh, great pleasure. Uh, Now, for some of you who don't know Henry's work, he's an eminent historian. He's published many works that have been influential in aiding the move to better contextualise Australian history in the public and private spheres, respectively. But Henry joins us today for his latest call, um, and a call directly to and directed at the Australian director of the Australian War Memorial, Brendan Nelson, um, as a result of his massive call which would cost up to, it's been estimated, $500 million to rejuvenate or reinvent the Australian War Memorial. Um, Henry, now looking into your scholarly work, it, it would seem that any time is a good time to put pressure on the Australian War Memorial to, re, to remember and commemorate the frontier wars. Um, why do you think it today and now is a particularly good time? Well, I think if, if, if there is going to be a, a you know, a, clearly a massive um, rearrangement and rebuilding of the War Memorial, uh, it is the time to consider what is uh, displayed in the War Memorial. And in my view, and in the view of many people, I think, it's obvious now that the frontier wars were wars uh, in, in, in the real sense. And it, is, uh, it would be extraordinary if we uh, spent half a billion dollars on the War Memorial and didn't decide to include what I think were the most important wars in Australia's history, that is, the wars that were fought in Australia, about Australia. And uh, this, is, this is done, I mean, both in the United States and New Zealand, clearly, they see the the land wars or the the Indian wars as wars, and 
haven't done that in Australia, and it is time now to, to reconsider the whole question. Mm. And you think there's groundswell that has building for this? And what do you think it would do for the, I don't know, collective Australian psyche to have that war m- memorial included within? Well, I, you see, th- th- there's no doubt. I mean, there are very few people now who who uh, try and argue that there wasn't much conflict. Now, that is clearly, I mean... In, in just in the in the last ten or fifteen years, there's been a massive amount of new scholarship, which has absolutely confirmed beyond doubt that there was a great deal of conflict. And most people accept that there was conflict, and it went on for a very long time, you know, for 140 years. Now the question is, you know, how you how you interpret that conflict, uh, whether it was war or not. Now. I think that certainly since the Mabo judgment, which changed our law historically, you know, in retrospect, in a way, then we have to totally you know, change the way we see the conflict. But the alternative is not particularly attractive. I mean, if it wasn't war, what was it? Was it was it um, a crime wave? You know, was it uh, was it um, you know brutal killing for no purpose? Um, it, it just seems that to consider it war both elevates the importance of it, but it allows us in particular to understand why the settlers killed Aborigines, but also it allows us to see the Aborigines as people who were fighting for their land and their way of life against very, very you know heavy odds, and that we should be able to see them as patriots fighting for their country. And uh, that is what could be done if you embrace them in the sort of national commemoration of war. Mm. And do you think the National Memorial is a good place? We've had a few guests on early this morning who have been giving us a little insight into where the funds for this memorial come from. And a lot of it seems to be coming from, at present state, from a lot of arms dealers do you think it is definitely the place to commemorate these battles and these frontier wars and also these massacres? Well, no, I, I, I would be, I would be uh, just as happy if there was a separate institution. I mean, if the War Memorial simply recalcitrant and says no way, you know, go- a government could just you know deal with that. But you know, it, it's not obvious that Australian governments at the moment would heavy the War Memorial. So, a separate institution, uh, there's plenty of room in Canberra, and let's spend the $500 million, not on the present war memorial, but spend it on a new memorial about the frontier wars. Uh, you know, that, that would be perfectly fine with me. Um, as I say, Canberra is the place for it. It's, uh, you know, as we all know, it's got wide open spaces, there's plenty of room for new institutions. And um, it would seem to me if uh, the war memorial doesn't want to, uh, include this, uh, then a new institution is perfectly appropriate. Mm. How would you see that new institution being built? Would it be, would it be next to it, or obviously there'd be a lot of dialogue? But do you have an image in your head at the moment? Not really. Um, I don't know enough about you know about the uh, you know. I, I can just see there's a lot of open space in and close to the. You know, to, to where all the great national institutions are around the lake, mm. um, it seems to me that there's there would be no problem finding a location, and it would become 
in many ways as important as the War Memorial and would attract a great many people, not not only Australians, but also international visitors who who would want to know about that aspect of Australian history. Now, there are some countries, you see, particularly countries that broke with their their European imperial overlords. Um, In South America, now in Chile in particular, the national hero of Chile is the the, uh, the Indian chiefs who defied and fought the Spaniards. That is, they see them as their national heroes. Now, there seems to be no reason at all why we can't do the same. You've and been... see those... Yeah, go on. Yeah, you're very right. And it seems like there is a groundswell building with William Cooper, an Australian Aboriginal political activist, just being commemorated in Shepparton this year, a little bronze statue. It's a little bronze statue, but it's a start in the heart of Shepparton. Um, it seems like... And it was put together by the council there. Um, to put the funds oh, yes, forward I for that. I haven't heard about that. That's that's very interesting, and it it is slowly happening. I mean, mm. uh, I mean, compared to the the, the other war memorials, which, yes. as we know, Monumental. almost ev- every 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 little village in Australia has a monument. And mm. you know, I'm not saying they shouldn't be there at all. Uh, but I, what I'm also saying is, we have to, on the country recognise that what we had here was a war for the ownership and control of the continent. And that makes it a war of global significance. Well said, Henry. Well said. And you're heading off to Canberra tonight, I believe. We're running out of time, but maybe... No, 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 no. no. I'm going up to the Northern Rivers for, uh, for, an, for, an, for an event, yes. So that's, that's fine. And uh, you know, thank you for, for calling. Uh, my pleasure. Um, thank you for coming on and look forward to hearing a little bit more. Maybe you'll get to Canberra and plot out that um, war memorial and bring back. Oh, I, I think I think there's a lot of, lot of, lot of distance to go yet, so yeah. Right, a bit of perspective. Thanks, Henry. Okay, bye. Henry Reynolds there, giving us a little update on his thoughts on what should be happening to commemorate the frontier wars. Up next, we've got Denise Braley talking about the Royal Commission into the banking system, giving us a little update on that. We're here at 3CR. It is Wednesday breakfast. Right, Kuda there at 3CR Radio. No banker left behind, which leads us lovely satirical note into our next guest, Denise Braley, who is a tireless and epic online publisher and activist um, in the realm of bank control and fraud who has spent the last 15 years of her life helping everyday Australians ask the tough questions of the banks. Thanks for joining us, Denise. You're welcome. (laughs) Good morning. Good morning. Um, Tuning in from over in WA, really appreciate the time that you're giving us. Um, Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the Royal Commission at the moment, I was hoping get some context of where your last 15 years have been, but more importantly, what led you into this long, long path that has been 15 years of activism and, and work in the bank system and holding them to account? Well, I, I blame the media because um, for 25 years I've actually been known as a, a consumer advocate in doing this in my spare time in between um, work commitments. Um, but the media sent me people that needed some help with something or other. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this came up uh, very early in the piece. Um, yes, as you said, 15, well, it's nearly 18 years ago now, and I got a call to say, you know, people needed help. They were about to lose their home, and they had a bank loan. So that's how it started. 
Oh, and you haven't dropped the phone since. No. <laughs> There's been a few more joining me. So I've looked at about two to 3,000 cases, I suppose, over that period of time. Oh, and what have you noticed at looking over those cases? Have you picked out a common theme there? Oh, yes. We've reported everything that I've done. I've reported to Parliament in about 23 submissions to inquiries. I've lobbied for inquiries. I lobbied for this Royal Commission. Um, I'm the one that sent a letter to Bill Shorten uh, in March 2016 and got a call to say Denise were running. So that was a fairly big milestone in my work. Mm. Uh, but uh, the, the main thing I was seeing was that uh, people with mortgages didn't realise that the details on their loan application form that they'd never seen um, had been uh, uh, altered after they signed and without their knowledge or authority, and they didn't get a copy of that document. So that was fairly significant. That there was a fraud in play because it wasn't one broker or one bank manager. All the process was identical. Mm. And, of course, then later in, uh, on... You know, right, right about 2005, ASIC was still blaming the um, uh, brokers. And I said, it's not about the brokers. It's about the, uh, the whole system. Mm. Now, this was uh, in meetings discussed with ASIC commissioners on about 30 occasions back then in those years. And still they were in denial, yeah. And it's taken this long. And just to get things straight, the banks make money from loaning money to people to buy a house, say, for example. Or when you take out a loan from a bank, that's when the bank is making its money. Yes, but to the, the, the real thing is that the target market, which I knew about, because I went to a bank seminar in which I was a guest and I was front row and I... Um, uh, was listening to what they were saying to a thousand financial planners, and they were deliberately telling them to go out and seek ARIPs, and that was asset rich, income poor. And I linked to the director next to me, and I said, "Oh my God, they're going to go after the pensioners," and they did. So the banks target taught the sellers, we'll call them, to target those people that were older. <coughs> excuse me, but owned their own homes. Mm. And so what are you and seeing? Because they own their own home, they, they had equity, and the banks were after the equity in the house. Eventually, they'd steal the house. That's, I'm quite blatant about that, because that is what a, the evidence tells me. Mm. And is this what the Royal Commission is finally uncovering itself at the moment? Well, it's starting to. I mean, there was a sensational thing yesterday, Patrick, and this was quite bizarre, where um, it was talking about the uh, uh, documents that were being um, not witnessed. I know what that document is. It's the fourth page. People only ever saw, showed three pages for signing. We knew that very early in the piece. They didn't ever see the other eight pages. That document is 11 pages long. So when they saw, when I asked everybody when they come to me to go and get the copy from the bank, but asked for the 11-page document. They were amazed, horrified at what they saw on the other eight pages because they'd never seen those pages before. So the document they're talking about in the Royal Commission yesterday 
is the fourth page that they never saw. And that fourth page is income statement. It's like a stat deck to say, I hereby uh, admit that I earn uh, uh, 150000 a year. And these people were on pensions. They, there was no or low income. They would never, ever sign a document like that. And that was where their disgust came over the phone straight away. And they said, I would never sign that. Mm. So how did my signature get on there? Well, when you sign three pages for a bank, that signature is held electronically on file. This is coming from the top of the bank. That's terrible. Yeah, these staffers didn't invent this scandal. They didn't invent that method of approval. The the loans were then all robo-approved. It was a computer did it. Mm. So the banks are gearing up to be able to say, watch them do this. They'll say, well, it's a computer error. Mm. But my question is... And they've been running with that for a while. Yeah. Uh, Oh, years. Years, ever since I raised it with them. Mm. So the Prime Minister... Sorry. Yes, go on. No, sorry, Denise. I was going to jump in there. I jumped in on you. But what was your question that you've been raising to them? I wanted to know why there was fraud and forgery on all these documents and why the major banks acting as a cartel, even Hayne, Commissioner Hain is coming out and asking, were you acting as one? Yes, they were. As one said, one of the witnesses said, well, no one wanted to be first horse out of the box, in other words, and change their ways. Mm. This was too profitable. They were getting older people that own their own homes that were nearing the end of their working life, were either on a pension or a small income, and getting giving them a $500,000 loan and selling them a property in a different state to what they lived. That's how it worked. It's criminal, Denise. What practical evidence or, or steps do you give to individuals who are struggling with a sphere mortgage at the moment and realising where they are? Well, the first step, I, I send them a list of instructions. They've got to join as a member. We've got a group called BFCSA, and they really do need to do that so that I can send them. A, it's, it's only a dollar a week or something we charge, but they've got to get the information as to what to look for. But the first thing I do is get them to ring the bank and get their copies mm. of certain documents. And yep. then I, I send them instructions as to what they should look for next. Mm. But all of them find, without exception, oh, my God, Denise, you'll never guess what I found. I, can, I, I don't think I can quite comprehend, and I reckon we'd need to get you back on, Denise, to talk a little bit about what unfolds in the Royal Commission as it proceeds to continue. Thank you so much yes. for joining us. You're very welcome. All right. Take care, Patrick. <laughs> You're tuned in to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We have had a packed show. Thank you for joining us. Oh. <laughs> Wobbly. <laughs> Wobbly old. Hey, hey, maybe that's a good just moment to just say 3cr.org.au. If you want to donate to 3CR and help our Wobbly studio, get onto it. <laughs> <laughs>